as the children and the youth uh, go to their uh, classes, I wanted to take just a moment to um, thank you on behalf of my family for the many prayers uh, in these last weeks. Thank you. Pastor Hank is officiating a wedding in New York this morning, so that's why you're not seeing him um, here today. Let, let's pray together. Uh, we stop before you once again, Lord, with gratitude that you've given us your word, and that your word um, penetrates our hearts, that you speak to us, that your spirit um, is at work speaking your word to us, and we pray that we'll be changed by it today, God. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, today we're, uh, marks the first Sunday during Lent. Lent is the six-week period in the church calendar when Christians around the world focus our attention on the sacrifice of Christ as we prepare for the celebration of um, his suffering during Holy Week and his resurrection on Easter. So as we journey through Lent this year, uh, we'll be making our way through some of the Psalms, the songbook of the people of God. And as we do so, let's open our hearts and our minds to all that God may want to reveal to us. The word Lent is an old German word. It comes from the root meaning that means long, referring to the lengthening of days. From the winter solstice on December 22nd to the summer solstice on June 22nd, each day has a little more light than the day before. First, just four seconds of light are added. Then by June 4th, four minutes of more of light. Then by June 22nd, four more minutes of light. Obviously, it's not necessarily noticeable that each day has a little more light than the day before. I don't know if you noticed that there were four more seconds of light. I did not. But the cumulative effect of that thrills us as we begin um, in the summer having more sunlight through the evening hours. We notice it then, don't we? Yeah. Well, just as the length of days grows, you and I also grow as we walk with the Lord. Again, not always noticeably, until one day we stop and we realize that we understand or experience or practice some aspect of our life with God so much more than we once did. Has that happened to you? You say, oh, I, I, I get this now. So when I was a child, this is just an example of that, I thought about prayer in two very specific ways. First, there were the prayers led by the pastor of my church. His name was Louis Beckwith. And he had a deep, booming voice, which to a child could be a bit intimidating. He always wore a black robe with billowy sleeves when he led our church services, again, kind of distancing for a child. And he spoke when he prayed in these and thou's. All three of these things weren't part of everyday life to me. No one else I knew boomed when they spoke. No one else I knew walked around in robes. No one else I knew used these and thou's in their conversation. 
They weren't part of my childhood vernacular. And so as a child, I thought that prayer, real prayer, was something that only the pastor could do. The second way I thought about prayer can best be described by sharing what I remember to be one of my first prayers, maybe my first prayer. Well, I had learned to ride a bicycle at, at a fairly young age, so my first two-wheeler was on the small side. <clears throat> and one year I had clearly outgrown it and couldn't ride it any longer. And my parents were thinking of buying a new bicycle for my birthday gift, a much more extravagant gift than I might normally receive on my birthday. So my two sisters and my parents and I piled into our car one evening and headed to Child World. Anybody remember Child World? In New England, that was the toy store. Child World, that amazing place that was dedicated to the joy of children. We loved any time we got to go there. So we got to the bicycle section of Child World and that's when I saw exactly what I wanted. A purple, and that was my favorite color as a child, not anymore, but a Schwinn Stingray bicycle with a banana seat and tassels hanging from the handlebars. It looked something like this. My parents, on the other hand, spotted the bicycle that they were sure would be perfect for me. It was blue and it looked more like this. Not, not with the rust, it was shiny and new, but I couldn't find a shiny new picture. Um, the, the only thing going for it from my perspective was that it was shiny and new. I begged my parents to reconsider. I pleaded with them and I pleaded with God. The first prayer that I recall praying you're laughing, but I truly, I lie in bed at night and tell God that if he gave me that very cool purple stingray bicycle with a banana seat and tassels hanging from the handlebars, I would do anything for him. Please, God, don't give me that nerdy blue English bicycle. That's what they were called, that style. Well, guess which bike I got for my birthday? It was such a disappointment. God did not answer that prayer. My parents did this loving thing of buying a new bike for me, one that they hoped that I would ride for years to come and wouldn't outgrow. And I didn't outgrow it. I rode that ugly thing until I was a young teenager and had saved up enough of my babysitting money to buy myself a bicycle. And this time I bought a really cool Raleigh 10-speed racer. My view of prayer as a child was small, right? Very small. Limited, just like the number of hours of daylight in the middle of the winter are limited. But as I grew in maturity, as I grew in my faith through the years, I discovered that prayer really was much more than my pastor's booming voice talking to God with words that weren't used in any other conversation, and much more than coming to God with my shopping list of wants. And don't get me wrong, opening our hearts to God and telling him about what we want 
or what we need or about what others need. Those are all good and important parts of our friendship, of our growing intimacy with him, of our trusting him, of the privilege that we have in prayer. But that's not all that prayer is. George MacDonald said this about prayer. He said, but if God is so good as you represent him, and if he knows all that we need and better far than we do ourselves, why should it be necessary to ask him for anything? Maybe you've asked this kind of question yourself. What's the point of prayer if God already knows? Then MacDonald goes on. I answer, what if he knows prayer to be the thing that we need first and most? What if the main object in God's idea of prayer be the supplying of our great, our endless need, the need of himself? Hunger may drive the runaway child home and he may or may not be fed at once, but he needs his mother more than his dinner. Communion with God is the one need of the soul beyond all other need. Prayer is the beginning of that communion, he said, and some need is the motive of that prayer. So begins a communion, a talking with God, a coming to one with him, which is the sole end of prayer. We must ask that we may receive, but that we should receive what we ask in respect of our lower needs is not God's end in making us pray, for he could give us everything without that. To bring his child to his knee McDonald says, God withholds that man may ask. So as McDonald suggests, what's most important about prayer is that we are seeking God, that we are crawling up on our Father's knee to be embraced, to be held by him, to talk with him, to commune with him, to be enfolded by him and his love. And any of us who've had a child climb up to be on our lap knows how wonderful that is. What a picture of prayer. Julian of Norwich, who lived a monastic life in the Middle Ages in the 14th century said, prayer is yearning, beseeching, and beholding. Prayer is yearning, beseeching, and beholding. And this also seems to be David's posture in Psalm 63, yearning, beseeching, beholding. So this morning we're going to be reading together Psalm 63, verses 1 to 8. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. Some translations here say marrow and fat, which really doesn't sound very appealing to our diet, but would have been food for a king at the time of David. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. <clears throat> well, Psalm 63 is one of David's psalms written while he was in the desert of Judah. 
We're told that in the introduction to the psalm. David had fled to this desert region earlier in his life when Saul was pursuing him and he fled there again at this time while he was king and his son Absalom, who, who he loved, betrayed him and plotted to take his throne. You can read about it in 2 Samuel chapters 15 and 16. David was in the desert. For the time being, his crown, his palace, his honors, the hearts of his people, the love of his child whom he loved, they were all forfeited. He had lost them all. And he's alone with God. And in his hour of desolation, he looks up from his desert circumstances to heaven. David began Psalm 63 with a proclamation that God is his God. These same Hebrew words were used in the opening verse of Psalm 22, the psalm of faith and confidence in God's help, which was quoted by Jesus in his suffering on the cross. My God, my God, Jesus said. David says, you, God, are my God. According to Henry Lydon, a 19th century theologian from England, man, humans, can give himself by halves. He can bestow a little of his thought, of his heart, of his endeavor upon his brother man. In other words, man can be imperfect in his acts and he is as he is imperfect and finite in his nature. But when, when God, the perfect being, loves the creature of his hand, he cannot thus divide his love. He must love with the whole directness and strength and intensity of his being, for he is God and therefore incapable of partial and imperfect action. He must give himself to the single soul with as absolute a completeness as if there were no other being besides it. And on his side, Man knows that this gift of himself by God is thus entire. And in grasping and representing the literal fact, he cries, my God. O oh God, you are my God. The all-powerful, almighty God of the universe is the personal God of David, the personal God of Christ Jesus, the personal God of your life and of my life. David testifies to this, and then he speaks his commitment. Earnestly, I seek you. Earnestly. Serious in speech or action. Eager, urgent. Ardent in the pursuit of an object. Eager to obtain or do. Zealous with sincerity, with hearty endeavor. Heartfelt, fervent, intent, fixed closely strongly bent, strenuous, diligent. That's what earnest means. Do those words describe your spiritual life, the way you seek God? Intent, fixed closely, strenuous, diligent, zealous with sincerity, eager, urgent, heartfelt, fervent, strongly bent, serious. In the message, Eugene Peterson translates the beginning verse to say, God, you're my God. I can't get enough of you. In earnestly seeking God, we can't get enough of him. Stuart Briscoe once said that God will meet a person on the level of his or her desire. 
A person can have as much of God as he or she wants. Think about that for just a moment. A person can have as much of God as he or she wants. Our earnestness in seeking God directly correlates with our closeness with him. Some Bible versions, instead of using the word earnestly, translate verse 1 to say, early I seek you. In this regard, um, the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer regarding seeking God early are particularly challenging, I think. Bonhoeffer says, every morning, God gives us the gift of comprehending anew his faithfulness of old. Thus, in the midst of our life with God, we may daily begin new life with him. He says, in Holy Scripture, morning is a time full of wonder. It is the time of God's help for his church in Psalm 46.5, the time of joy after a night of weeping in Psalm 35, the time of proclamation of the divine word in Zephaniah 3.5, the daily distribution of the sacred manna in Exodus 16, verse 13 and following. Before daybreak, Jesus went away to pray in Mark 1.35. In the early hours, the women go to the tomb and the disciples find the risen Jesus on the shore of the lake of Tiberias in John 21, 4. The people of faith wake early because of their expectation of God's marvelous acts, Bonhoeffer says. He says, sleep no longer holds them. They rush to greet the early grace of God. And then he goes on, before the heart unlocks itself for the world, God wants to open it for himself. Before the ear takes in countless voices of the day, it should hear in the early hours the voice of the creator and redeemer. God prepared the stillness of the first morning for himself, and it should remain his. Before our daily bread should be the daily word. Only thus will the bread be received with thanksgiving. Before our daily work should be the morning prayer. Only thus will the work be done as the fulfillment of God's command. The morning must yield quiet time for prayer and common devotion. That is certainly not wasted time. How else could we prepare ourselves to face the tasks, cares, and temptations of the day? Challenging words, aren't they? Whether the psalm is translated to say, early I seek you or earnestly I seek you, our focus should be on intentionally seeking God daily. There are so many things calling for our attention. Work, responsibilities at home, needs of the family, needs of friends, needs of neighbors, our avenues of service to the Lord and to the church. Not to mention the saturation that we face of, of media and technology in our day. Time alone with God, time spent meditating on his word, time spent in prayer, time drawing near and communing with him. They have to be priorities for us today, just as they were for David. Earnestly, I seek you. When we don't order our day and seek God intentionally, the reality is, is that he may not fit in our day. Psalm 10, 4 has really hard words. It says, in his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. 
After David said, earnestly, I seek you, he went on, my soul thirsts for you. My whole being longs for you. Spurgeon wrote that thirst is an insatiable longing after that which is one of the most essential supports of life. There is no reasoning with it, no forgetting it, no despising it, no overcoming it by stoical indifference. Thirst will be heard. The whole man must yield to its power. During this Lenten period, many people fast from certain things. When we do so, the, the longing just seems to grow over time. The longing, the craving for those things that we have given up. That longing, that thirst, that craving, it can draw us ever closer to the Lord and can serve as a literal, literal reminder to us in those moments that God alone, God alone can satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. In the desert wilderness, David would have experienced physical thirst and hunger. But here we detect in his words an even more profound thirst and hunger, a thirst and hunger that he had for the Almighty, for the all-loving God that he knew and worshipped so well. Jesus in John chapter 7 talked about this kind of thirst, this kind of longing. And at the time, it was the Feast of the Tabernacles. Um, that's one of the three major feasts in the Jewish religious uh, calendar. And as the feast um, itself celebrated both the gathering of the harvest and also the exodus of God's people from Egypt. During the feast, the high priest would go to the pool of Siloam and take a golden pitcher, dip it into the pool and carry it back to the temple. And then there he would pour that water out on the altar of sacrifice. And at that moment, the Levites would blow the trumpets and the great crowd would cry out the words of Isaiah 12, 3. With joy, you will draw water from the well of salvation, from the wells of salvation. There would be leaping and dancing and shouting and singing and great hallelujahs would fill the air. And on the last and the greatest day of this feast, the climax of this great holiday, Jesus, we're told in John 7, stood up in the crowd and with a loud voice cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. E.M. Bounds wrote, Jesus did not promise a trickle or a stream or a flow. He promised a river. Can you get your mind around this? He said, the Holy Spirit is like a mighty rushing river, a life-giving river. He is like the mighty river found in Ezekiel 47 that produces life wherever it flows. Rivers don't start out as mighty and rushing. The mighty Amazon River finds its origin above the freeze line of the Andes Mountains in South America. There, the trickles of water emerge from the frozen ground and flow down the mountain. One little stream flowing into another little stream until a majestic river is formed. And as the river flows, it picks up speed and it picks up power it flows for 3,600 miles, 
before it reaches the Atlantic Ocean, where it hits the ocean at a rate of 1.4 million gallons of water per second, and with such force that it pushes fresh water some 60 miles out into the Atlantic Ocean. What power? If an earthly river that begins as a trickle of water here and there is that amazing and powerful, we can only imagine the power of the life-giving river flowing within us. David also exclaims in Psalm 63, verse 2, that he has seen God, seen his power, seen his glory in the sanctuary, the holy, sacred place. At this time, remember that the presence of the Lord was with the people of God through the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. The, the temple hadn't been built yet. Later, that became God's dwelling. But even that was temporary. After Jesus' ascension in Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was given to the church as promised, he was given as an indwelling presence. Even today, the regular and consistent meeting together of a body of believers who love God and love one another is a powerful display of God at work. Think about it for a minute. God has given us the indwelling Holy Spirit. He's in me. He's in you if you're in Christ. That's a lot of the Holy Spirit in this room. That's a lot of the Holy Spirit in this room. Should we ever be surprised when we sense his spirit in a palpable way? May his power and his glory be seen among us. And David then moves on in this psalm to speak of God's love, which he describes in verse 3 as better than life. This word that's used is the Hebrew word hesed, the relatively undefinable word, which Pastor Hank and I both have talked about in sermons before and we'll talk about in sermons again. Um, my favorite book that I'm reading right now is Michael Card's book, Inexpressible, Hesed and the Mystery of God's Loving Kindness. Oh, really, really good book worth reading. In it, he begins the book was sharing about the mysteriousness of words, how we think and communicate in words, and how and why we do so being such a mystery. Do you ever think about that? You're listening to my words, you're thinking in words, and why? Why? It's such a mystery. In the preface to the book, Card cites the making of the Oxford English Dictionary as, the, as an example of the complexity of language. He said that discussions began in 1844, and it took more than 13 years for an astute group of linguistic experts to decide that a new comprehensive dictionary of the English language was needed. They estimated that it would take 10 years to complete and would fill four volumes, when in reality it took over 80 years and covered 40 volumes. Michael Card shared that his book is founded on the inexpressible mystery of words in general. He says, almost without our awareness, words do their thing, lighting up the neural pathways in our brains. He says, we use words to define other words because words are all we have. Now, one could argue, I think, that we have more than words, 
when we consider the visual arts and music and that kind of thing. But I think we generally would agree with this thought that we primarily think and define and describe in words. And then he talks about some words being indefinable. He says words that require paragraphs and parables to provide even a hint of all that they might possibly mean. And then he goes on to suggest that perhaps the most mysterious, the most inexpressible word of all is this Hebrew word, hesed. Hesed appears in the Hebrew Bible almost 250 times, and more than half of those occurrences are in the Psalms, including our Psalm today. Sometimes hesed is translated as love, sometimes mercy, sometimes kindness, sometimes loyalty, and the list goes on. In 1535, in Miles Coverdale's translation of the Bible, he actually made up a word, loving kindness, specifically to try to translate hesed. It's a word that then was borrowed by the King James translation and which has stuck with us for all these generations. You wouldn't have thought that loving kindness was a made up word. The working definition of hesed that Michael Card uses in his book, and he says it's not his own, but the definition is this. When the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. When the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. David experiences this hesed from God as better than life itself. And then in verse 6, David recounts how he remembers God on his bed, how he thinks of him through the watches of the night. Some suggest that the watches of the night are midnight. Others suggest 3 a.m. Either way, the picture is one of sleeplessness, right? Now, maybe we're a student. Maybe we're up at that time studying or finishing a paper or just hanging out with friends. And of course, there are those dear people who work the night shift night after night. But for most of us, often when we're awake in the middle of the night, worry is at work within us. David's remedy was to meditate on God, to think about all of the ways that God has been his help, his protection, his joy. Perhaps David was lying in bed recounting his shepherding years or his battle with Goliath or the years of avoiding Saul's murderous attempts and now when he's facing the same kind of murderous attempt from his own son, David could meditate on God's faithfulness in the past, on the strength that God's presence gives. And he says, because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. <clears throat> well, in thinking of Psalm 63 as a Lenten Psalm this week, I was really struck by some of its parallels with Jesus, things that, that I've, I've never thought about. Um, but as I was praying and thinking, laying, lying myself in bed Friday night, these are some of the things that came to mind. David was in Judah at the time of writing this song. Jesus, son of David, was in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, at the end of his life. David's life was in jeopardy at the hands of his own son. 
Jesus's life was in jeopardy at the hands of God's own covenant people. David meditates on the Lord and his power and glory in the middle of the night. Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane in the middle of the night, seeking his glory as he followed God's will and as he experienced God's empowering presence. David experienced the helping presence of God and Jesus was strengthened by God's presence with him. So many people take Jesus's words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first verse of Psalm 22, as proof that God turned away from Jesus when he bore his sins on the cross. I have really struggled for years with that thought, that concept, that understanding. Within Judaic tradition, to quote the first line of a psalm was a means of referencing the entire psalm. So when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of the words of Psalm 22 also follow that line. Verse, Psalm 22 has all sorts of details of Jesus's crucifixion. And verse 24 of the Psalm says, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. That's God listening to cries for help. Today we're going to be sharing in communion together. The worship people, I, is anybody playing music during communion? You are, okay. Um, we'll be celebrating once again this sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, his broken body, his spilled blood. As we do so, let's commit ourselves, whether for the first time or once again, to earnestly seeking God. As we seek God earnestly, eagerly, our thirst will be quenched. The longing of our heart will be filled. We'll experience the indwelling spirit and we'll see his power and glory manifest among us. His love will be our heartbeat and our passion and our utter fulfillment, better than life itself. We'll be filled with overflowing praise. We'll have a new framework for our thinking, his help instead of our fears and worries. We'll be enfolded by God's loving care and we'll be upheld by his right hand, which is where Jesus is now seated. Every time I read Psalm 63, eight, and I think about being upheld by his right hand, I think that's where Jesus is. Psalm 63 was so important to the early church that John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers in the fourth century testified that it was decreed and ordained by the primitive fathers that no day should pass without the public singing of this Psalm. Every single day, the early church sang and heard the words of this psalm. 
What kind of framing to our day might we experience if we heard this decree ourselves and, and read or recited this psalm each day? Could each of us add that small ritual to each day throughout this period of Lent? See how God uses his word in our lives as we do so. We have uh, communion elements at the back doors. If you didn't get yours on your way in, please feel free to help yourselves to them. Pastor Patty will be coming and um, sharing and leading communion with me. In these next moments, we'll be sharing communion together. You can come. Celebrating the new life that we have in Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to partake of the bread and the cup. The table of the Lord is for all who believe, for all who have received Christ Jesus as Lord. We now invite you to come to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Come not to testify that you are perfect, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciple. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in your frailty you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before you, lift up your minds and hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to you the witness of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Our hearts overflow with thanks to you, Lord. And we can't um, express enough our gratitude for your saving work, for your sacrifice, for your broken body. So as we partake this bread today, Lord, renew in us um, a sense of the love that you poured out, the love that held you on the cross, the love that led you to the cross. And help us to love you back in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to join together in the communion response. My brothers and sisters, this bread which we break is it not the communion of the body of Christ? This bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. Take and eat this bread, remembering he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your heart and be thankful.
In the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup, which in the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing, and he told his disciples, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it, and in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for sending your son to us and then to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you for this symbol of your blood and um, with this cup that we can just remember that you poured your blood out for us. Continue to help us to grow and to learn, and we just thank you for, for this communion table today. In your name, amen. Let's join together for the communion response. My brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? This cup of blessing which we bless is the communion of the blood of Christ. Take this cup, remembering that he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, out for, many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. 